Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. So it was my assignment this morning to introduce Bishop Terrell Glenn, the, uh, the founding pastor of this church, but I just did it. So Terrell, welcome. Glad you're here. Thank you very much. Teresa and I are beyond delighted to be back. Um, But before I get into what I want to start into, I've just got to say thank you to Ryan and the team. Through the Holy Spirit, you wrecked me on the front row. I don't know if that happened to anybody else, the way I like to think of it. With, as we just worshiped, the Spirit was thick in this place as he moved among us. So I pray that as we did worship, um, one of the things we said often in the first six years, um, the first three years, was that personal pain robs perspective, just does, but worship restores it. It's just where we take our eyes off ourselves and our situation and then put them on God, the God of all situations. And then things start to right-size. And, um, and I hope that kind of was what God was doing in, in your life. I tell you, right here on the front row, I, I was going to turn around and look at Teresa, but I thought if I do, I'll lose it completely. So, um, but again, thank you all for your faithfulness in your ministry. I know you have real gifts in your, myth, in your midst. Um, would you pray with me? Grant, Lord God, that my message and my speech might not be in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of your spirit and of your power. That our faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It is good to be back. It's, it's good to come and And remember, 10 years as a people, um, I'm reminded, in fact, we've done a lot of reminiscing. Teresa and I drove around yesterday to some old haunts and had a great time doing that and seeing some some friends. But I've had this memory of um, when we first got to Texas, and I'd come to Texas to visit. We'd never lived in Texas before. We were both from South Carolina. And so we were just beginning in the first days, beginning to acclimate and going to stores and just kind of interacting with people. And, and we were talking with some friends and Teresa made the point just because this friend was inquiring about how, how's it going? How's, how's the acclimation? How's the settling going? And so Teresa just bubbled with enthusiasm. She said, oh my goodness, everybody here is so nice. It's like you go into the store and people greet you on their way out. It's like it's perfect strangers. It's, it's wonderful. And then Teresa said this, it's just so Southern. <laughs> and she was met with a smile and a correction. <laughs> that's not Southern. That's Texas. <laughs> Never forgotten that, because we learned that that's so true, and it's such a gift to be back in Texas with you. I want to just kind of 
call out the elephant in the room because I think it would be easier to do it this way. Um, we are gathering to celebrate 10 years for this, for this church, and they've been remarkable years. They were remarkable for us just getting here and encountering a group of people who love Jesus so much and had a sense of a call. But then there, there's also a profound inflection point that God has led apostles to with the transition and the change, the Cumbie's departure. And so it makes perfect sense that if you're sitting here today with a mix of emotions, then I'd just say, well, then you're probably paying attention to where we are, to where you are. So what I'd like for us to do is, I'm terrible at titles. I just don't like to try to title a sermon until after I've preached it, and then Teresa will tell me something like, well, I think you were talking about this. Um, But if I had to come up with a title for today, this is what it would be. So, what do we do now? (laughs) And let me tell you what I think at least God gave me to share with you, and hopefully I'll get to all of them in the time I've got. Um, I believe that what you do now is you endeavor to, by God's grace, to be a people of prayerfully faith-filled expectations to be a people of life-directing gratitude and a people of winsome testimony. And I want to use two stories, the two stories, the narratives that we just heard, um, first from 2 Kings and then from Luke 17. And they're both stories about desperate people. The first one is this desperately poor widow with two sons who are about to become slaves because she can't pay her debt. And then the other is of ten lepers who are living as outcasts with no hope and no future. And they come into the presence of the power of God. So let's look at the first one. Faith, prayerful, faith-filled expectations. If you've got a Bible, you can just look on 2 Kings chapter 4, 1 through 7. It's a pretty quick passage. And let me just give the setup as a reminder. The wife of one of the prophets had lost her husband. One of the the disciples of the prophets had lost her husband. The prophet was Elijah. He had disciples, and those disciples were often called the sons of the prophet. And she approaches Elijah, and she says, Your servant, my husband, is is dead. We know absolutely nothing about her for the most part, other than that she was married to one of the sons or disciples of the prophet Elijah. But we also know two things about her former husband, because she says it. She says that he is loyal to Elisha, calling him your servant. And he also, she also makes reference to his faith, that he was faithful to God, And the phrase is, he feared the Lord. Especially at a time when so many of the people around him, so many of the religious leaders were immoral, idolatrous, and incredibly unfaithful to God. But she was in a predicament. As a widow in the ancient times, it's not just sad, it's tragic. It's not just tragic, it's dangerous. The level of vulnerability for a widow at that point in history. And so she, she reveals the real dilemma before her to the prophet. And you see it right there in the second part of verse 1. The creditor has come to take my children, my two children, to be his slaves. 
Now, now what's that about? Well, apparently, sometime before his death, the, her husband had taken out a loan, and it seems to be of a kind of a considerable size. And his collateral was deeply personal and extremely expensive. He put his two sons up as collateral. As a result, were he to default on the loan, the creditor had a legal right within Judaism to seize the two sons because they would have become debt slaves until they paid off the loan in its entirety. And all of this, though it sounds harsh and terrible, it was completely legal under Mosaic law. Actually, it was pretty common practice in the day. And so here's her situation. As a result of that arrangement, were she to default, there would be no, nothing illegal or unjust about the creditor making it be paid, the debt. When the husband died, the loan defaulted, the creditor had no recourse but to take the boys, to foreclose. So she brings this to Elisha. And his response is great. Because on the one hand, you could think, okay, I wonder how, somewhat, how I would respond to that. Someone who, who put his sons up for collateral, for your debt. Why did you get in so much debt? What were you thinking? That's, you know, he, but his response isn't judgment or correction or blame. His response is filled with grace. And he says this, What shall I do for you? Tell me what you have in the house. In other words, he's, he's with her in her home, with her two children. She, he looks around the house, say, what have you got? I'll work with you. Let's see what we can do. What do you have? And the answer is pitiful. The answer basically reveals she has nothing. Just a small jar of oil. Now listen carefully to Elijah's response in verses 3 and 4. He says, okay. Here's what you do. Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into the vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. Now, do you get the picture? The vessels, the word vessel, it means any kind of container. I mean, in our, our contemporary context, if he were here and he said, okay, go get vessels, he means go get empty yogurt containers, go get an empty milk jug, get a big bucket if you can, just whatever you can find, go get it. And then he actually explains what he's going to do. It's a little cryptic, but he says, you go get it and bring it in, and when you do, we'll pour oil. And when one's full, then we'll keep pouring. And so she hears this, and what's most amazing is no pushback. She doesn't say, wait, wait, what do you mean get buckets to put on our heads? What, what do you mean get a vessel for what? Here's how much I've got. What am I going to do with a bucket? What am I going to do with two buckets? Notice this also. We'll come back to it. The boys stay home. Did you get that? Did you hear that? They're supposed to stay behind. The widow goes out to get the vessels. There's a reason that we'll see in a minute. But you can't miss the most important words in the whole thing. There are four of them. When he says, go out and get some empty vessels, and not too 
few. Do you hear it? Do you hear what he's challenging her with? He's already told her what he's going to do. You go get as many buckets as you can, bring them in, and when you come in, we'll start pouring. And not too few. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying this. Don't you know your God? That your God delights to meet you at the level of prayerful, faith-filled expectations. Where are yours? Now, she returns with the vessel, starts feeling empty, full, empty, full. It's got to be quite a scene because there's a little teeny jar she had. And so she's pouring in a big, big container, and it just keeps coming. And you use your sanctified imagination if you want, because there's that bucket, and then is there another one? So then she gets another one and starts filling, and it had to take a while, because if you're pouring from something really small into something big, it just takes what? Probably spilled a little bit. Probably got a little messy in there. Get another one. So move that one. Let's go get some more. And it kept going. And once... There were no more vessels. The oil stopped flowing. God delights to meet us at the level of prayerful, faith-filled expectations. Notice what's not true here. It's not saying that God, is, God delights to do what you dictate or you demand. They're very different things. It's what, as in your heart, you really believe he can do. It's, it's like God taking Abraham out of a tent when he was renewing a promise and Abraham just was fed up with the promise that he'd be the father of all nations. He didn't even have a kid. So I don't want to hear any more about the promise. And so God says, come outside. So if you was told him to come outside, that means he was inside. And if he's inside, he's probably inside a tent. If he's inside a tent, he's probably surrounded by all the things that he ever bought or made or had somebody else make. In other words, the stuff he could do. And God takes him outside and says, look at the stars. And he points him to his handiwork. And it's then that Abraham believes. And God reckons it to him as righteousness. Prayerful, faith-filled expectations. He delights to meet us there. We're celebrating 10 years. And I know for, personally, Teresa and I know that for the first three, this really was manifested again and again. 10 years ago, God connected a, a small group, a handful of families who all shared a common longing a longing for a church that would be biblical, that would be spirit-filled, and would be sacramental. To have those three streams flowing together as one river all together. And so they prayed. They prayed, they came together, meeting in homes, called a planter. The planter and wife were a little hesitant at first, thinking... You, you want us to move to Texas? <laughs> but you know what God used to turn our heads and hearts? We've been praying, and we were talking about our quiet times in the midst of the invitation to come to apostles. And Teresa said, because uh, I said, so what are you hearing? What do you, what do you, what, what's the Lord saying? And she said this, I keep seeing their faces when I pray. They were praying for a planner. 
But God was going to have to move. But their expectations, your expectations, were high. Then we formed a launch team, a group of people who wouldn't just come and sit, soak, and sour in the, t- in the seats, but people who would actually, shoulder to shoulder, do the hard work of planting a church. For most of us, it was a very new endeavor. It was interesting because it was actually a room full of entrepreneurs and people who are very, very successful people at doing what they do. But this doing it with a church is, is a little different because we needed to build teams. We needed to build children's ministry teams. We needed to build worship teams. We needed to build management teams. We needed to have ushers, and we needed to have, and we needed people to step up because we weren't going to be paying people to do all these things. It would be everybody who was a part of the launch team. We'd need a leader for each team. We'd need team members. We didn't have that many people, so most people wore two or three hats. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. Prayerful, faith-filled expectations. The Lord delights to meet us there. Ministry teams were built. Children, greeters, ushers, management, communion teams, youth. Only God can do that. Found a place to worship in the scout hut. Then found the opportunity here in this place then eventually we're able to buy it. God delights to meet you at the level of your prayerful, faith-filled expectations. But not the same as just doing your bidding. And then the years to follow, again and again, faith-filled, prayerful expectations. So what do we do now? You endeavor to be a people of faith-filled, prayerful expectation. To expect, as the great William Carey said, to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for God. So I want to leapfrog from that story to the other one from the gospel. This life-directing gratitude It's another story of somebody desperately in need, but there were 10 of them. You remember how the story is set up there. Jesus is approached from a distance by 10 lepers. And according to the law, they could not come into the surrounding area. They had to keep their legal distance, and they had to let people know that they had leprosy so that they could be safe. And so they call out to Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on us. And so Jesus tells them what to do. He says, okay, go show yourself to the priest, because the law said that when you were healed of leprosy, you had to go to the priest so that you could be deemed ceremonially clean. And then you could join the community and come back to worship. So there these people are. They're calling out to Jesus. They all have leprosy. He says, go show yourself to the priest. No one raises his hand saying, "Um, but we have to be cleansed first. Then we can go. They go. Amazing faith. They go. And on the way, we read in the story, they're cleansed. They're healed of their leprosy. But the story also tells us that one of them, and he happened to be a Samaritan, a real outsider, he stops and turns and goes back to Jesus. The nine kind of keep going. We don't know anything about them, but we do know what this one did. He comes back, and he praises Jesus, falls at his feet, and says, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
Jesus looks at it, and you can see him. Weren't there ten cleansed? And only one comes back? Do you know, have you ever seen this to be true in your life? Have you ever considered the, the reconnecting power of gratitude? It's just when, when we have a sense of, of being grateful to someone for something, and then we express it, it reconnects. It brings you back. Gratitude takes you back. So this one person, out of the ten, all were cleansed, he comes back. Gratitude always, when it's expressed, takes you back. It redirects your journey. Think about where you are right now, where Apostles is in its journey. The, the trauma of losing your pastor. The wondering of what's next and where is this going to go? That's the journey. But if you want to see it redirected in a way that you can have a confidence that God is in the midst, let it be redirected by gratitude, by thanking God for all the things he's done and all the things he's doing and all the things he's yet to do. Express gratitude takes you back. It does redirect your journey. You may be discouraged, confused, perplexed, challenged, especially then it's critical to thank God. Gratitude always takes you back. But get this. In the story, it says in verse, chapter 17, verse 14, that as they went on their way, they were cleansed. And that's a specific Greek word that comes from the word catharsis and as a cleansing. And then in verse 17, Jesus asked, weren't all ten cleansed? But then in the very end of the story, in verse 19, he uses a different word, sasuskin comes from the word, root word sozo, which means saved. Weren't ten cleansed? And he says, rise, get up. Your faith has saved you, has made you whole. Now don't miss this. All were cleansed. One was made whole, saved. Here's the point. Gratitude expressed does take you back. It's got reconnecting power. But with Jesus, when you go back, he's always got more. He always has more for you. Sometimes when we experience a loss, we so focus on the loss that we focus on our shrinking and we forget, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Go back to Jesus. Go back filled with thanksgiving. Because gratitude takes you back. It's got a reconnecting power. And when you go back to Jesus and say thank you, he will always have more for you. Because he sees a humble heart that chose to turn and come back. So what do you do now? You endeavor by God's grace to be a people of life-directing or life-redirecting gratitude. Today, we celebrate 10 years, 10 years of testimonies, 10 years of healing, 10 years of challenges met and the glory of God seen, 
10 years of God getting the attention of Church of the Apostles to say, I know this may be counterintuitive, but I want you to focus here. And you did. And people were blessed and lives were changed. There's one last one I want to add. You also endeavor to be a people of winsome testimony. If you go back to the story in 2 Kings, just one last little piece. So the story of the widow, Elijah had told the woman to put her two boys behind the door and in her home. And then she goes out to get the vessels. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Just like, they must have been teenagers or something. Like, can't you help a little bit here? But no, that wasn't because they were, they were lazy. It's because Elisha said, keep them in the house. And there was a reason. It might be odd to us that they wouldn't help. We think they might be lazy sons. But Elisha was very specific in his instructions. And the reason goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 10 and 11. Take care, no, excuse me. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. Do you see what Elijah was doing? First, he was taking God at his word. The creditor could not enter the house to seize the pledge. And so he says to her, you go bring the buckets in. And then when everything is filled, when all the buckets are there, and there's enough to pay off the debt and to live on, then you go out. A creditor couldn't enter your house to seize a pledge. Instead, you were required to bring it outside to the creditor. The creditor couldn't go steal away to take away the children. But if you remember how the whole story started, it was when the woman, the widow approaches Elisha and says, the creditor has come to take my sons. And if he finds them outside, he can seize them legally. But inside, they're safe. And so as she returns, go, shut the door behind you, you and your sons, and pour all the oil into the vessels. Elijah provided a miracle, a miracle of oil. She could pay her loan and not lose her kids. She and the kids can live redeemed. But Elijah is following the law completely, and the law is fulfilled, completely satisfied all demands of justice. He didn't kind of merely wave his hand and say, okay, well, your debt's forgiven, and I'll take care of the creditor for you. No. He produces the income to pay off the loan. Now, you got to lean into this part. He produces the income to pay off the loan. The rights of the creditor are upheld. The children of the widow are redeemed by the gracious act of God. That should have a ring of familiarity to it. Have you ever noticed that in the New Testament in Jesus' ministry, most all of the Old Testament miracles, he does. He just repeats it, but kind of in his way. Moses holds out a staff and splits the Red Sea. Jesus stands up in a boat and by his word commands creation. 
and the waters are still and the wind stops. Elisha raises the Shunammite woman's son from the dead. Jesus raises the son of the widow at Nain, and he also raises his dear friend Lazarus, who died. Under Moses, manna fell from heaven. Under Jesus, a multitude was fed by a fed on a Galilean hillside. You get the point. But we never see Jesus do this. We never see him perform a miracle quite like what Elisha does here, paying off a financial debt. In fact, it's almost like all of his miracles avoided money. There's only one little teeny thing when, when Peter is told by Jesus to go fishing and get a half shekel out of a fish's mouth to pay the poll tax. But that kind of pales in comparison to what Elisha did, so that's not really a good comparison. It is true, Jesus didn't fulfill this miracle this way, the paying of an unpayable debt, fulfilling the law of justice in order to meet a desperate need. He didn't do it in his ministry in Galilee. He saved this one for last. He fulfilled it on the cross. A miraculous source of the greatest wealth to pay off the debts and to satisfy the law completely. Justice fulfilled by his death. He pays off the debt of you and of me. What we owed God, he paid. The wage of all our sin was death. And he died that death for us. We were owed the wrath of God to burn against our iniquity. And Jesus received it in his flesh. The fullness. Debt paid. He didn't use oil. He used his own blood. And he paid our debt that stood against us. The wages of all our sins. So what do we do next? So what are we going to do? You're going to be a community that has a winsome testimony. A people who walk around as those who know I'm forgiven. And because I'm forgiven, I can forgive. I don't have to be an emotional debt collector of all the people who owe me. I can forgive. And you as a community can continue to put on display something the world, obviously, because being played out in front of us every single day, that cannot figure out how to forgive. It's your testimony. You live because of what he did. You live because of the debt paid. Your eternal destiny is secure because of the blood of Christ that was shed the gift of faith that was given to you, the receiving of him into your life, the new life that was given, and now you get to live as one who knows that you know that you know that you are loved by God. And you show the world what that looks like. That's a testimony. Because people walk around and not living love, they live judged or they live entitled, or they live angry. But as followers of Christ, we get to live loved and show the world what that's all about. So now what do we do? 
faith-filled, prayerful expectation, life-redirecting gratitude, and winsome testimony. And watch what God does. He's done it and been faithful for 10 years. He's giving no indication of stopping anytime soon. And to God be the glory. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.